Welcome to Trying Days, The Journey, Conversations with Publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Whitney Webb, professional writer, researcher, and journalist who has written for several websites. From 2017 to 2020, Whitney was a staff writer and senior investigative reporter for Mint Press News. She currently writes for Unlimited Hangout and The Last American Vagabond. Her Trying Day book is One Nation Under Blackmail. The Sordid Union Between Intelligence and Organized Crime That Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. Volumes one and two come out in September and October 2022, respectively. To order them in a money-saving bundle, go to tryday.com and look for new releases. Whitney and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Thank you. Hey, great to be here. Yes, indeed. You know, I contacted uh, Whitney about, you know, she'd been doing some writing on Epstein. I says, you know, it needs to come into a book. And, and Whitney said, yes. And Whitney has a baby. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, don't, don't forget COVID too. You know, we right. talked about doing the book in January, 2020 and the world got turned on its head a little bit after that, uh, where I live in Chile, I lost childcare for almost all of 2020 because they closed everything down. And, you know, then on top of it, instead of having one kid, I now have two kids. Right, <laughs> so. right. Instead of having just, yeah. just one book of maybe 300 to 600 pages, we have two books of about <laughs> 900 pages. And well, in total, 900 pages. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. A, a very, very good 900 pages. I mean, I just uh, really enjoyed the book and, and uh, people that uh, have, have looked at it have uh, commented to me just uh, how good it is. Just to I explain a little bit to, to, to folks out there, July, we started to, you know, get, get some of the chapters and I uh, started to, you know, get them off to an editor and then get them back to you and then get them approved. And uh, about when we just were starting that, I got COVID. And so, um, you know, I get them and I look at them and I say, well, wait a minute, this is going to be, we had to split it up into, into two books. Um, and now we got uh, a lot of uh, pre-orders at the Trying Day site. And I want to thank everybody for uh, the pre-orders. Uh, the people that ordered early uh, before August, before we knew, uh, will be getting uh, uh, both books. We will be asking uh, those people if they want to help us to fray the cost of them basically getting a free book. Uh, they're, they're welcome to. The first book has, has, has been printed. The second one is starting to get printed this week. We will be waiting for both books. To, so we'll just be making one one shipment to people because uh, freight prices uh, keep going up. So people should start receiving their books about uh, mid-September by, you know, between mid-September and the, and the 22nd, they uh, should be getting books and we will be shipping. Needless to say, Whitney, we live in very interesting times where uh, a lot of the stuff that has been behind the curtain because of the personal computer and the internet, much more has been revealed, uh, you know, so we're able to see the uh, corruption that has happened and slowly and, and put us into a position where basically we're being ruled by uh, people that aren't respectable, I'll, I'll put it that way. 
what has been the most mind-blowing thing that that you have uncovered for yourself what 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 have you come across that really shocked you um okay so i guess for me the most surprising part of um the investigation that you know produced these books um it would have to be the stuff about uh jeffrey epstein and the clinton white house uh, specifically the person that he was meeting with at the White House, uh, who most on most occasions was Mark Middleton, who was um, assistant to um, the chief of staff, Mac McClarty, in the Clinton White House. And so um, until last year, uh, the, the understanding was that Epstein had met with Middleton about five times. Uh, the Daily Mail, which is a UK outlet, um, last December published uh, their, the complete visitor logs of Epstein uh, at the Clinton White House They'd have, they, they had um, obtained, and it, it was about 17 times the amount of visits that actually did take place. And you would think that that would generate some coverage in the U.S., but no U.S. outlet covered it. And then a few months later, uh, pretty much just as I was putting together that chapter, Mark Middleton turns up dead. And he turns up dead in a very disturbing way. First of all, uh, his body is found on a property that is linked to the Clinton Foundation, an NGO called Heifer International. Uh, second, he is found hung from an extension cord around his neck from a tree. And thirdly, he, in addition to that, uh, has a shotgun wound to the chest. And subsequently, uh, a court order is issued within Arkansas to prevent any sort of um, video footage, photograph, any sort of media uh, depicting the death scene at all. It's ruled uh, a suicide, basically. <laughs> In Clinton you know, era fashion, I guess you could say. Uh, so the intrigue is definitely there. And then the more you look into Mark Middleton, uh, as I've said on several recent interviews, it gets pretty insane pretty quickly. Um, I think one of the most telling examples without really getting into the meat uh, and potatoes of what Mark Middleton was doing at the Clinton White House um, is that in the uh, early days of the George W. Bush administration, there was an effort to investigate the scandals around Mark Middleton at the exact time that he was meeting with Jeffrey Epstein at the White House. And George W. Bush steps in just a few weeks before 9-11 in 2001 uh, with his first invocation of executive privilege. And that invocation of executive privilege was to prevent documents about Mark Middleton being made available to congressional investigators. And of course, 9-11 pretty much stops that investigation from going forward and the whole thing ends up being memory hold. And it seems like that order, uh, tacit order to memory hold continues because there's been very little mention of Middleton, uh, no interest, despite the obvious relevance of it to a U.S. media consumer's Clinton White House sitting president, Jeffrey Epstein's going to meet there. There's been a lot of talk about the Epstein-Clinton relationship. The mainstream media has only really been willing to deal with the years when Clinton was no longer president. Uh, photos have since emerged of Epstein and Clinton shaking hands as early as 1993 and other things. And there's just this air, this silence around Mark Middleton. So for me, it was really surprising once I started getting into uh, the scandals in which Middleton was embroiled that were of interest to congressional investigators at the time, because it really does seem to be one of the biggest scandals of the Clinton era, and hardly anyone remembers it. I think most people, when they are asked, if you ask the average American, 
who's informed enough, I guess, um, about scandals of the Clinton era. It'll be things like Whitewater, Monica Lewinsky, you know, things, things like that. But you, you probably won't hear about Mark Middleton. And I think that's by design. What was the, what was his, the major scandal surrounding him at the end of the Clinton administration and just and into 2001? Well, so it was an investigation into activities that took place in and around the 1996 election. So it, the investigation was ongoing and continuing. Uh, well, it actually really started around, I think, 98 or so, maybe 97, uh, but 98 properly, and then went through 99 and continued after Clinton had left office until it, you know, more or less fizzled out because of more, I guess, urgent matters after uh, 9-11. The, the ostensible focus was financial improprieties in relation to Clinton era fundraising for that reelection campaign and the involvement of uh, numerous foreign nationals who cannot legally contribute uh, to election campaigns, apparently contributing significant amounts of money uh, in, you know, in various guises. Uh, to the the Clinton campaign and the DNC, um, but it was actually a lot more extensive than that. And as I note in the book, um, a lot of it was essentially ob pretty obvious espionage activity. A lot of it focused on specifically the Commerce Department, then led by Ron Brown, uh, who used to be chairman of the DNC, and um, a lot of really disturbing things going on there. Of course, Mark Middleton's in the center of it. It, but a lot of these figures involve uh, Chinese nationals or people from Taiwan. Uh, so sometimes people have referred to the scandal as China Gate, but I think it's a lot more uh, complicated than that because uh, most of the so-called China Gate individuals are intimately tied to a wealthy family from Indonesia, uh, the Riyadis. And the Riyadis are business partners of Jackson Stevens and longtime political benefactors of uh, the Clinton family going back to their time in Arkansas. So a lot of these people that are, you know, um, top suspects or, or figures in the Chinagate scandal are actually much closer to the Riyadis than they are to the Chinese government. Uh, people like John Huang, for example, who was a very central figure in this um in the scandal. And he also had a relationship with Jackson Stevens and all of these guys, of course, intimately tied to BCCI and, you know, some of these intelligence linked um, finance networks uh, where Epstein also swam. So that's where we start getting maybe, you know, from that, that sort of hints where this deeper scandal goes. And I think, you know, I, I tried to flesh that out um, in the book as much as possible, because if you're looking at the career tra trajectory of Epstein, um, as I note in the book, you know, in 1993 uh, was when the Towers financial Ponzi scheme collapsed that Epstein and Stephen Hoffenberg, who was recently found deceased, planned together. And uh, even though Epstein was named the mastermind of the Ponzi scheme in front of a grand jury, his name was dropped from the case. Hoffenberg takes the fall for that Ponzi scheme. But instead of anything happening to Epstein, he goes straight in to Clinton fundraising in 1993, first with the White House Historical Association, and then after that into these um, other illegal financial activities that later became under congressional investigation. Who were Epstein's major backers or controllers or colleagues in all that he did? Okay, well, you're talking about a career that spans several decades, and I think it changed um, on different occasions. I would say that one of the main benefactors that we can obviously see and his power can be seen in the fact that mainstream media has refused to interrogate his obvious role in this would be Leslie Wexner. 
And I did uh, devote two chapters in Leslie Wexner to uh, in the in the book. And I think it's quite clear that uh, this is a man with a lot of political influence, not just in the United States, but in Israel as well. And he's invested a lot of his, quote unquote, philanthropic money in currying favor with people who later become uh, influential figures in the government um, of the United States and specifically Israel. So he has a lot of uh, a lot of clout and a lot of power. And if you look at, um, you know, Epstein's associations, he's also intimately tied to uh, figures linked to intelligence. He's been alleged to have been involved with Israeli intelligence specifically and once claimed to work for the CIA. But I think he's um, he sort of moves in. uh, He was potentially a double agent. um, And I think that may have been what sort of led to his uh, demise, you know, at the end of the day uh, with warring factions you know one of them uh not so keen on epstein by that point in time but you know it's sort it's sort of a hard um hard question to answer in a short (laughs) in a short you know amount of time because it is a really complex um he's a very complex individual that's working in a lot of different uh theaters i guess you could say and there's you know a lot we don't know but what we do now, you know, makes it pretty clear, more or less, what was going on. And a lot of times, uh, these people running around on the board, okay, like Epstein, uh, you know, they can be double, triple, quadruple agents, and not all the time know exactly who they're working for. And they're right. also, to a certain extent, working for themselves. And I find it very telling that uh, George W. Bush uh, helped cover this up because at the end of the day, what you generally find is the Clintons are lieutenants in the Bush crime family mm-hmm. and, and really don't operate so much on their own. One thing that I found is that the, the people in the shadows, whatever you want to call them, they'll play people into positions, okay, and sometimes even make people think that they're at the top of the mountain when they aren't at the top of the mountain. They're on, they're on a peak before and so it's very, very uh, telling that uh, uh, George W. Bush helped cover that up. And then again, we have all these dead people. We have uh, uh, Mr. Brown also uh, of, the, of the Commerce Department, Mr. Mr. Hoffingberg and Mr. Uh, Middleton there. So it's just a uh, continuation of uh, business as usual to yeah. a certain extent. If I could interject and just add something about Ron Brown in there. So it's not only Ron Brown dying, it's, it's a plane crash that kills pretty much everyone on board. And several of the people that were on the plane, I think it was like 34 in total, many of them worked for the ITA at the Commerce Department, which was the specific part that John Huang and some of these other people had expressly sought to infiltrate at the Commerce Department. And so these were people that worked with this guy who was later at the time, you know, under congressional investigation. And then you have the fact that Ron Brown, uh, when his body's discovered at the site of the plane, has a bullet wound in his skull that wasn't caused by the plane crash Um, and a lot of intrigue there. And you even had people like Maxine Waters call for an investigation into the anomalies of Ron Brown's uh, body as it was discovered at the plane crash. It's just memory hold. Um, completely. Uh, it, it seems like they had to tie up loose ends. And as I note in the book, it seemed like the reason this happened was because Ron Brown had agreed to cooperate in a con- uh, congressional, oh, sorry, not a congressional investigation, but a criminal case that was related to what Congress was investigating once you start to look into it. But it was a, a matter of an energy company. It was involved with people in the Clinton administration, including McClarty. 
who was Middleton's boss, um, but also people tied up with the same China Gate, quote unquote, China Gate nexus um, and, and corruption uh, in the um, energy sector in the United States, where they were basically overcharging, grossly overcharging people in the Midwest for energy costs and pocketing the, uh, the profits for themselves. And, you know, Ron Brown was going to cooperate in that, but I think in cooperating in that investigation, it would have unraveled a lot more and the people in, con in the congressional investigation would have realized that it was related to what they were investigating and it would have gotten out of control for them very quickly. So soon after he agrees to investigate, he's unexpectedly asked to go to a trade mission on Croatia. The plane crashes allegedly because of navigational issues. But then at the airport where they were trying to land in Croatia, their head of navigation is found dead two days later with a bullet wound to the chest. And that is ruled a suicide. Right, right. And, and this continues. They'd been working a long time um, uh, since Nixon and Kissinger and then George H.W. Bush being the first guy into China of the move from these guys in the shadow to try and, quote unquote, rule the world through China. OK, because it's, it's much easier to uh, if you start ruling from your own roost, people want to attack that. So uh, that's how they've been playing these games. But, you know, they've ran into a bit of a, uh, a problem with the uh, uh, the people and the internet and the personal computer has really brought out a lot of this information. And so it's not all as uh, hidden as they would have liked it to have been. So speaking about the, the internet, so I think what that did is that it decentralized access to information. And so that's why you see, you know, by the early 90s, the emergence of the narrative that we're hearing all the time now about how only authorized sources should be available to publish information on the internet. You know, this is going back to like 60 minutes, I think in 1995, attacking uh, Jay Orland Grab and, and others, uh, you know, <laughs> saying that, oh, these, these naughty people, even though I think I forget exactly what prestigious university Grab taught at, but he's not exactly just a, you know, it's, it's pretty nuts to call him a crazy person. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. University of Pennsylvania. No, I was very, uh... Now, had you heard of Jay Orland Grab before I, I, I brought him into your... No, I hadn't. That extended the book slightly. <laughs> right. well, you so. know, it, well, you know, I was looking at, you know, you were sending me chapters and I says, she needs to know about him because, I mean, that was a very, very exciting time when he was, him and uh, James Norman were doing their investigations into... Uh, banking and stuff. And that's where we really started to learn about Jackson Stevens and systematics and all of that. Every day they would drop a new thing, you know? And so the people were, it was just very exciting because we'd just be waiting for that thing to drop. And then, you know, they, they dropped in Casper Weinberger's secret bank account and all this stuff. And it was, uh, it was heady times for uh, conspiracy theorists. And <laughs> then now it's gotten almost completely washed from the net. I mean, it, it, it's hard to find. Yeah. It's just mm -hmm. amazing. Well, that's happening on a much bigger scale now. So a lot of the material I used in, in the book, um, a lot of it on, on some matters, like um, Christine Maxwell's Kiliad Tech Company, for example, that's been deleted from the internet. 
can't find it. A lot of things, and, and people will notice this in the end notes, a lot of them had to be, um, links had to be linked through the, uh, the Wayback Machine or archive.org uh, because they're no longer online. And there has really been in the past couple of years, uh, a huge uptick in the amount of censorship on the internet. And this is not just social media specific. I know a lot of people focus on censorship on social media. It's much more extensive than that. There is a major effort to scrub as much as they can from from uh, you know uh, the internet, and you know even archive.org, for example, has been under attack and asked to you know curate some of their archived uh, snapshots of old web pages and stuff like that. Uh, very troubling. There used to be another website called History Commons uh, that was very useful in finding old historical material about things like 9/11 and, and other issues, and uh, that's been deleted. And, you know, it, it's going to keep picking up. So I would encourage people, if you come across something interesting, save a hard copy. If you want, if you really want to keep it, you know, save it onto your computer. Don't expect that it will necessarily be there. Even, you know, the Wayback Machine is a good way to save something, but not permanently, at least not anymore. And I think the effort to bring the internet to heal for the powers that be is going to pick up as well. And so I think a lot of people uh, that have been following, you know, the agenda behind the vaccine passport, for example, the digital ID and all of that, the goal is to have your internet access tied to your digital ID as well. Um, and the World Economic Forum, for example, talks about this as early, uh, back in 2018, uh, saying that basically the digital ID, in addition to being you know, key to your finances and your medical history and everything else will be uh, used to determine what information you can and can't access, as well as places you can't and can't access. So the places part, we saw with the vaccine passport. You can go here if you're vaccinated, but if you're unvaccinated, you can't, stuff like that. So that's also true for information for the people that set this up. So basically the idea there um, is to, um, and, and they're explicit about this as well, uh, your ability to access the internet is, there's going to be a push for it pretty soon uh, to have it tied to your national ID or a digital ID. If you're, the country you're in has only like a, you know, a national ID number or something like that and not a digital ID or something like that yet, it'll be, the, the push is to have it tied to that. And uh, we've seen a couple countries pitch that, the EU uh, and the UK over the past couple of years. And I think it's going to pick up as a way um, they all of course justify it as, oh, well, we'll be able to, to stop cyberbullying and hate speech because we'll know who says what. No more anonymity online, no more privacy online, but also it's for surveillance purposes. Which person is visiting these naughty websites um, and wrong think websites and stuff like that. Um, and you know, your ability to access the internet and participate in the internet could be subject to, to control in the future. So there, there's definitely plans in motion, not here yet, but could be here soon if people don't get wise to it, uh, to end, uh, the revo the, I guess, re information revolution that the internet originally made possible. Uh, they definitely don't want that to continue indefinitely. Well, we all need to stand up and make sure that it does, because there are technological ways to make it so that uh, their control is not there. I mean, that was one of the things that the gentleman who set up the World Wide Web at the, initially, he could have done something um, that made it less free at that point in time, and he chose not to. So it is choices uh, that we, the people, make, and we need to... Uh, stand up and, and, and demand 
uh, digital freedom, among other among other things. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's really important for people to go in and archive stuff. Like, you know, if you're interested in a particular time in history or something, even stuff happening now, if you're interested in stuff going on with COVID or the energy and fuel crisis or something like that, and you see something that seems damaging to the authorities or is contradictory, you know, I mean, if you think it could be useful later, back it up and save it because it's really only a matter of time until they start taking anything down that, that contradicts their, their theories or their authorized sources uh, that are allowed to, you know, report media that doesn't get fact-checked or quote-unquote fact-checked. So are you, you, you happy that you're done with volume one and volume two? Uh, yes, because now I have my life back. I got to do things that I'd waited like three years to do. You know, I have more time to spend with my kids and stuff, which is nice. And I think a lot of people that followed my work um, uh, before the book, you know, is out, obviously, um, are aware that I tend to be very, go kind of long, very detailed, very sourced work. So yeah, I did that on a, on a, a large scale <laughs> with, with the book. So that's why it ended up running long. So I've learned my lesson now. Um, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. People come to me all the time and say, hey, I've got a book, you know, and I, I always start off first, well, do you have a manuscript? You had a manuscript, but it wasn't quite done yet, but we did get it done. And I, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. It's just a, a, a deep, deep dive. Uh, you brought in all the uh, relevant uh, uh, parts to it. And it's, it's an excellent, excellent book. I just can't. can't yeah. I tried to be that. as thorough as possible. So I wouldn't have to do it again, you know, <laughs> uh, and I might've gone a little overboard, uh, on, in that regard, but you know, um, I, you know, I, when we realized it was going to be two books, I asked, you know, do you want me to take anything out or reduce anything? And, uh, you liked it the way it was. So I hope people that, you know, buy the books feel that way too. There's a, a reason why they ran honey traps you know, was to, to blackmail people. It's one thing that, you know, I learned very early on in looking at uh, CIA drugs and then looking on at how the, the world really worked. I said, well, you know, there's all these opportunities for blackmail uh, and, and they use them uh, to control people. And that's a, another reason why I keep saying that we need to have more people in DC because right now we have 535 people there because of the size of the buildings. And we should, there should be, you know, a lot more people there because that 535, you know, all you got to do is, you know, maybe uh, uh, control maybe half of them or something like that. And you've got a pretty good handle on uh, making control of, of what comes out of there. You know, my basic posit has been, okay, well, if we can get information out there, put it in front of the people and maybe they can understand you know, the corruption that surrounds us. And then, you know, we can, because we have to figure out what the corruption is before we can deal Solve with it. Solve it, exactly. Right? We need more transparency, more transparency. So one of the reasons I think the book ended up being so long is that I went really far back in history. And a part of that is because I'm hoping to appeal to people that don't necessarily see themselves as quote unquote, conspiracy theorists, right? So in my experience, if you're going to talk about crimes of intelligence, 
uh, intelligence agencies to people. They're much more willing to accept that those took place the farther back you go in time. So for example, if I'm like, oh, okay, US intelligence and World War II did awful things, or uh, you know, the CIA, once it was created in the 50s, committed all of these crimes. Well, it was created before the 50s, but I mean, you know, if I go- yep. The CIA committed crimes in the 50s. A lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I follow you in the 60s and whatever. But once you start getting to the 80s, people are like, wait a second. I don't know. You might be a conspiracy theorist. And if you start talking about, you know, the last 20 years or something, yeah, then you'll definitely get called that. So I, I, my hope is where people are much more willing to accept that these activities took place. If you can show the continuity between the networks of the people committing those crimes and how there was no accountability and how it continues and how that chain never broke that you can sort of bring them up to the present and have them sort of realize uh, in a way, maybe they didn't before how things really work. Uh, Bruce, you have any more uh, questions or comments? I do. Chris, it's most intriguing to imagine that the folks in the shadows have been stumbling forward to quote unquote, rule the world through China so they've, they did a lot to build up and control some part of China, if not all of it. But I, I know there's all these contending factions. Been Whitney, I, I've been reading a, enough of Matthew Eretz's work. He praises a lot of what China's doing. And it is so revelatory because no one's praising China. And yet he does in terms of their following the American system and infrastructure, et cetera, and even Putin. Have you seen that from Matt? And if so, what do, what do you make of that? Okay, so um, I think Matt is a really nice guy. Um, most of the, I, I, he contributes to my website. Uh, a lot of the stuff I publish uh, from him is his stuff on things like uh, the Rhodes Scholars, um, some, of, uh, some of those uh, networks from Britain, specifically the Anglo-American relationship. Um, we tend to uh, disagree more than agree when it comes to China and Russia. And I think that a lot of the negative things uh, that he sees in, in China and Russia, he sort of relegates as being the work of a fifth column. Um, but I think it's difficult today uh, to look at some of the policies coming out of Russia and China if you are against the Great Reset and that umbrella of policies, um, as it's often called. Um, you know, China and Russia are implementing those things. And when it comes to COVID, uh, they are doing things that a lot of us uh, criticize in Western countries or in other countries. But I think we have to be consistent when we um, criticize those policies, as I understand it, because we've had conversations about it. Um, he says uh, that the reason China responds that way is because they're treating it as a, as a bioweapon and all of this. But my answer to that would be, well, then why did they collaborate at Wuhan and all these other institutions with, you know, the Pentagon and the DTRA and some of these other more suspect forces from the U.S. when they recognize that's a risk. And, you know, I think it, it can't be all off written uh, to fifth column stuff necessarily. And I think a lot of people in, in independent media, um, not everyone, obviously, but there's, there's, there's a group there that um, really likes to see certain nation states as good guys versus bad guys at the end of the day. Um, and I sort of, when I started off, sort of saw it that way initially, because, you know, you're looking at U.S. imperialism, uh, war crimes committed by the U.S., and you see, you know, the, the competing power factions, it can, it can look that way, that one's worse than the other. But I think at the end of the day, all governments 
are interested in domestic control, maintaining their power, and they have their own competing agendas that don't necessarily represent the the best desires or the aren't there to benefit the global public or even their domestic public, right? I think a lot of these things like uh, biometric IDs um, and uh, the QR codes, di digital ID, um, and a lot of these other uh, policies uh, that come under the, the Great Reset umbrella are threats to human freedom. And I think at the end of the day, uh, governments are more interested in maintaining their status quo and their power than necessarily guaranteeing human freedom. And I think some of these governments, independent of a fifth column, see these technologies that they're implementing in this way as an opportunity to extend their control over their domestic populace. And I don't think that's something to be celebrated personally. But, you know, I have a lot of respect for Matthew's um, uh, intellectual abilities and a lot of his work, but I don't think we um, agree on those issues. And I do talk about China and Taiwan, a pretty good uh, amount actually um, in the Epstein book. And it becomes pretty clear in the stuff I was sort of talking about the so-called China gate scandal that just like the US and, and Israel and, and a lot of the other countries that are focused on in the book, uh, some of the power players that have ties to Chinese governments are also sort of this typify this fusion of intelligence and organized crime because that symbiosis between those two entities, you know, is very beneficial for both in big ways. And crime that pays is crime that stays. And, it, and that type of activity is not exclusive to the US. It's not exclusive to the West. It has happened in lots of other countries. You know, there, there may be some good people in the system uh, in Russia and China that don't, you know, that oppose these things. And there are people like that in other governments too, that oppose these things, uh, I'm sure. But, you know, it's hard also to treat, um, national governments as monoliths where everyone agrees. Everyone in the Chinese government feels this way. Everyone in the Russian, you know, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think, um, we can't have uh, rose-tinted glasses when it comes to governments, because when you're talking about leaders, specifically national leaders, the, regardless of what country you're talking about, the people at the top of a, of, of a system like that uh, stomped on a bunch of heads and clawed their way up to get to the top. I don't necessarily think they're good guys. And I think if people are looking for the good guys um, on the battlefield of today, we should just look to other regular people, you know, and not look to national leaders, you know, some sort of political savior mm. to pull us out of all this muck. It comes down to uh, realizing that the people on the top pretty much everywhere don't really have our best interest at heart and that the only people that have our best interest at heart are us. Right. So I guess th that would um, those would be my thoughts on the issue. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Sovereign countries around the world have their own agendas um, and sometimes uh, competing agendas within those sovereign countries. And then, well, they may be criminals, but they're my criminals, you know. So e each, each country has their own uh, criminal gangs and has, you know, a history uh, behind those criminal gangs and their relationship to power, both through intelligence and through political power. It's a long story, and I mean, it's nothing new under the sun. What we have new, really, is the ability of the people to see it and to understand it. I really think that the internet has brought a lot of this knowledge out, and so 
of course, what are the people in the shadows and the people in power? They're going to try and control that because <coughs> that information out there is hurting their ability to rule us. Chris, you, you hammer so rightly the power of the vote. It's such a great lever. It might be the last lever we have as I'm talking about Americans. But now, to me, the other side of that coin is what came up in this conversation about digital freedom, digital freedom, because as Whitney described, if we get cut off from the ability to use the Internet as freely as we possibly can, who are we going to know to vote for? When, when the Internet first came on, uh, there was this thing, well, you know, they're just going to shut it down. They're going to shut it down. So basically, one thing that was created uh, in the early 90s, uh, actually starting back in the 80s, was a thing called DogNet which is basically just personal computers connected through telephone lines. You know, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, we're still in a bit of a, uh, a flux period, but I truly think that the ideas of governance from the bottom up, okay, is mm -hmm. basically what America is, okay? We're supposed to be governance from the, from the bottom up. And, you know, there have been throughout our history, um, people that have, you know, tried to affect uh, all of that. And so, I, you know, we just need to continue on, to continue pushing on. And, and yes, I do think that the vote is our tool. I mean, what are we going to do? You know, it's either a vote or, or a gun, you know, to make people, I don't know if votes make people do things, but you have to live together. We all have to live together on this beautiful blue ball. So, how are we going to do it? My brother was a, was a publisher of a newspaper and the newspaper got sold several times. And finally, one time it got sold and he left and I asked him about it. And he says, well, you know, there's two ways to publish a newspaper. You can sit around a table and talk about it and figure out how you're going to do it or through fear and intimidation. And the last people that bought it, they were operating through fear and intimidation. So, you know, how, how, how do we want our governments to operate? You know, I'd like it to operate, you know, we all sit around the table and talk about it rather than through fear and intimidation. People, you know, it's apathetic too. I mean, most of our recent votes, you know, more people have not voted than have actually voted. If it's okay to interject for a second on that, I think they're, they're trying to create an issue where there's major, both sides, if they're, chosen candidate doesn't win um, are going to question the integrity of the election results. And maybe it is fair to question the integrity of election results when you are dealing with a system that's become increasingly digital and subject to manipulation, depending on you know what company and what software is managing and counting the votes and all of that. And you know, election integrity, uh, you know, experts and advocates have been talking about these issues since like the early 2000s um, in a big way and not a lot has been done. So I think voting, if you feel that's important, that's great. What concerns me is, you know, 2024, just imagine, you know, one side doesn't get what they want. They'll blame Russian hackers on one side. On the other side, they'll blame uh, someone else, right? Uh, for not having, having it not happen. And I think they're, they're trying to push the country as much as possible towards sort of a, a partisan fracturing uh, for their benefit uh, to establish an even uh, more 
extreme, you know, uh, governance by, you know, <laughs> fear and intimidation, like you, like you mentioned, I think that um, may be in the work. So considering that, I think it's also important to very much build up um, local communities, because so much in, in this digital age we live in, people don't know their neighbors, people don't know each other anymore. Um, like Bruce said, if you don't have the internet, who are you going to know how to vote for? There needs to be more interest, I think, in local elections and getting to know the people who are going to run for office, maybe in your locality run for office, um, you know, something like that. Start printing out articles to share, you know, or, you know, share books around. There's a lot of things that can be done uh, there. You know, there's um, sort of a lot of a lot of talk these days about a coming food crisis. Um, you know, a lot of people can, you know, make gardening collectives. There's all sorts of stuff that can be done on the local level uh, to solve a lot of these problems. Because the answer to, you know, increased efforts to centralize everything is to just decentralize yourself to have that, you know, from the bottom up um, model that, that you mentioned, Chris, it, it has to come from us too. And we have to start taking some responsibility and some power back uh, from these people because they have a lot of tricks up their sleeve that, um, you know, they're planning certain things, but, you know, if people are able to uh, support uh, themselves and their communities and they can stop paying attention to all these, you know, circus clown shows on national level politics, you know, we might be better off. Yeah. Any, any, any last words, Whitney? Um, well, I guess I would just say about the book. Um, I worked really hard on it. I would really appreciate it if you would read it. Um, and I know that it's a little complicated for people that it's two books. Um, but for people that might be confused about what's in volume one and volume two, I will just briefly say that volume two is the bulk of the Epstein focused material. But you will miss a lot of critical context if you don't read volume one. So I would really, you know, this was written to be one book. So I would really encourage people to read the bundle or to, to buy the bundle if you want a physical copy. And I don't think we mentioned earlier, the ebook and the audiobook are going, there's gonna be announcements on those in the not so distant future. And that will, those versions will have both volume one and volume two together. So you get both books, the whole book really uh, together there. So that may be an option for people that, that find the price of two separate books or even the bundle a little more daunting because the idea is that people read the book look at the information that's there and we have a discussion about it. Uh, so I would just, you know, really like people to do that. So, you know, if you don't want a physical book, that's okay. Um, and there are going to be some other options available. Amen. Amen. Onward. <laughs>